Welcome to Wired for Impact, home of creators, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are wired to make a difference. If you're here, it's because you have three things. Number one, a unique gift or calling. Number two, you care about people. And number three, you have a deep desire to contribute. When you add those three things up, you are in the game of creating impact. You are what I call an impact player. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the program. And in each episode, I have conversations with world-class impact players who have aligned their unique gifts with the contribution they've made in the world to create massive impact. So listen into these conversations and allow them to inspire you to overcome the obstacles in your way and to fulfill your potential. In this episode, I sit down with Scott Chapman, who is the author of several viral articles, such as Written in Taliban and The Last Plane Out of Kabul. He developed a unique writing style based off of a lifetime of deep reflection, struggle, and perseverance. He enlisted in the Army out of college and arrived at Second Rangers one month before 9-11. He left the service four years later as an Army Ranger fire team leader. After working as a high-threat security contractor in Afghanistan, And working in the executive protection industry, he helped create an underground network to support Americans and Afghan allies after the botched U.S. pullout from Afghanistan in 2021. When his articles started to go viral about a year ago from the date of this recording, I reached out to Scott, but he was very immersed in trying to help um, the Afghans and certain U.S. allies out of harm's way and just didn't have time to do the podcast. We recently were able to sit down and have a conversation and it lasted multiple hours. So I decided to break up the the whole conversation into two parts. The episode that you're about to listen to now is the first part where we get into his military career and uh, some of the experiences that he had as a private contractor, as well as um, the development of the Afghan network to help people who were in harm's way. The second conversation we get into consciousness and God and his perspectives on electricity was is absolutely fascinating. So you'll have to make sure to tune into that one when it comes out shortly. For now, uh, let's get into it. Here I am with Scott Chapman. Thank you for joining me today, man. It's a true honor. I've gotten to know you a little bit uh, over the last year uh, through some of your writings and um, some conversations that we've had on the phone. When I first saw your writings, I immediately wanted to connect and just get to know you a little bit and better understand your perspective on your experience in Afghanistan, the so-called botched pullout of Afghanistan. And uh, so first, thank you for being here and taking the time because it means a lot to me. And and I know it's going to mean a lot to a lot of service members that are going to hear this as well. Thank you. It's a uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I know we tried to connect right after I wrote that initial article, and I, I had too much going on. I didn't have the bandwidth to have a sit down conversation or even digest what was happening. So, thank you for your persistence. Here it is now, a year later from your first initial message to me, and I'm glad we're able to connect. We had a short conversation. The year anniversary, you know, just passed. It was a good opportunity to revisit the conversation. Right. So thank you for making such an effort to make this conversation happen. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. For our listeners, can you just give a brief overview of your military career so that we can, because I want to give some context as to your involvement in some of this, and then I'll have some questions for you about some of the articles that you wrote. But Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I graduated college in the year 2000. And I enlisted in the Army right after I graduated college, which is pretty rare or pretty unusual. So I enlisted with a RIP contract, stands for Ranger and Doctrine Process, RIP. 
so it's the selection process to get into Ranger Battalion. Yep. Uh, so I spent four years at 2nd Battalion. And what year was this? What year did you graduate? I graduated in the year 2000. So I served... <clears throat> so pre-9-11. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I served in 2nd Rangers from 2001 to 2005, um, which is a very interesting time to be an Army Ranger. I would imagine. Right. I got to my unit. Uh, initially, I was in a weapon squad. I was in an AG and an ammo bear as well. I was two-man gun team. Uh, one month later, 9-11 happened. So I was brand new Army mm. Ranger private. Brand new. I'd, I'd been there one month. Knock on a door. And uh, specialist turned to TV on and the towers were gone. Right? Hey, we're going to war. So from that moment, I always like to say that I, I've been treading water in, in a hurricane. Mm. I, I've been one step in front of the, the tsunami since that moment. I'm, it's a constant struggle to stay ahead of catastrophe or to stay ahead of things. Mm. It's been um, a, lot, a lot of turmoil this past 20 years. So I spent four years in 2nd Range Battalion. I got out as an E-5, as a, a fire team leader. I made the invasion of Iraq. Um, as part of the initial push on Iraq, I uh, did uh, a handful of Afghanistan trips after that. I, uh, ETS as an E-5 team leader. Uh, from there, I started working in the executive protection space, protecting some of the world's richest and most influential people. Doing close body coverage, residential coverage, travel coverage, but primarily the static um, residential coverage. And um, I still had friends dying overseas. Hmm. I began to soon feel feel tremendous guilt. Hey, I'm, here I am living in Hawaii, living in paradise, protecting some, right, you know, some some rich person, mm-hmm. and my friends are still suffering. So um, I wanted to go back and continue to fight. I still had more more in me. Instead of reenlisting, I decided to uh, start contracting. Um, so I worked as a uh, contractor for Blackwater. Uh, so Blackwater, uh, formerly known as Blackwater, right. It was still Blackwater when I joined, uh-huh. which quickly changed from Blackwater to Z to, uh, I forget, Constellas, I forget what it is now. Yeah. But it, it's, it's a far cry from the from Eric Prince's Blackwater. Anyway, so I worked with Blackwater as a um, high-threat security contractor for the agency uh, in Afghanistan. CIA. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So I did that for six years. 2015, I was injured and unable to redeploy. Uh, so that's really my, you know, my, my Afghanistan um Gotcha. The Afghanistan story of my service stops. Okay. It is when I was injured and unable to deploy. Can we go back a little bit? First of all, what was the impetus for you to get involved in Ranger School in the first place? Well, Ranger School and Ranger Battalion are two different animals. Okay. So let me just explain that. B- bear so, with my uh, my, my um, novice no, understanding of some of this. No, no words at all. <laughs> I, barely anyone knows about this or anyone really cares about it. To explain the difference between Ranger School and Ranger Battalion, right? Ranger School is a school. Right. Right. So let's say you're in the 82nd Airborne, right? And you want to go to Pathfinder School, right? Well, once you go to Pathfinder School and you graduate, when you come back, you're not now a Pathfinder. No, you're still in the 82nd Airborne, which mm-hmm. is Pathfinder qualified, right? So Ranger School is a leadership school. That's all it is. It's a combat leadership school. Um, it has historical lineage to old, old ranger battalions, but now it's an RTB, a ranger training brigade, right? So it's a leadership school. Okay. So when these students graduate, they're not rangers, they're ranger qualified. Okay. There's a big difference. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> right. So so in a ranger battalion, you're required to go to ranger school, right? Okay. It, it's a rite of passage. You can't be a formal leader in a ranger battalion without having the ranger school leadership tab on your shoulder. Got it. Um, so, so for a battalion, it's a rite of passage. If you come back from school without your tab, well, then you're kicked out. Mm. It's harder to stay in battalion than it is to get there. Mm. So for other units, if they go to ranger school, let's say you're back in the 82nd, uh, you go to ranger school and you don't, you don't make it, 
well, good on you for trying anyways. Right? Mm-hmm. Go back to the line, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's no harm, no foul. But in battalion, you have to do it, right? Um, so that's the difference between a ranger school and a ranger battalion. Um, but I didn't initially want to be a ranger. Okay. Right. But, uh, yeah, what got you into being involved in the military in the first place? Um, so again, it's pre-9-11. I initially decided to join the military because I thought I wanted to do something in federal law enforcement. I graduated with a criminal justice degree. I figured, well, the next step in the evolution is to have experience before I can apply to anything federal. So I figured, well, I might as well join the military. My dad was a retired Green Beret, mm. right? So I'm familiar with it. And I figured, well, if I'm going to join, let me do something interesting. So I figured counterintelligence. Mm. In order to have a counterintelligence MOS, you need a top secret clearance. I was initially denied my top secret clearance because... So I was a full scholarship distance runner in college. I was a miler. I was an all-American 1,500-meter runner, all-American 3,000-meter steeplechase runner. Oh, wow. Um, And at my D1 school, I didn't run as well as I did in my junior college. But my last semester, I gave my scholarship away. I wanted to be a normal college student for one semester. I was tired of running 100 miles a week. Right? I I just wanted to be a normal student. Additionally, I didn't take any electives all through college. I took them all my last semester. Uh So my last semester was like fencing, golf, weight training, first aid. Um, like it, it was it was ridiculous. Plus, I gave away my scholarship, so I figured, well, I just get a job waiting tables just to offset some of the cost. Uh-huh. And I can pay for my pay this one month or this one semester of student loan off by joining the military, right? Mm. You know, interesting. Yeah. So so initially, so my last semester, um, I was drinking more than um, I guess an average college student yeah. or as someone with you know. I didn't think it was that much. Well, you seem like a high achiever, so I'd imagine even <laughs> well, the, on the drinking, you're. But, you're but gonna... also, in, <laughs> because I was a distance runner, right? All week long, you couldn't drink. And Saturdays, you uh, raced. So Saturday night, it was like it was binge drinking. It was it was terrible. Hmm. And then Sunday was day off, your one day of rest, and then the next ninety mile week starts again. Gotcha. Right. So so you know, Division One distance running in college, it's a, it's another full-time job. It's difficult. So that one night was like, we all just you know, kind of binged. So I just wanted to see what it was like to be a normal college student for a semester. I guess I drank too much. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I still graduated <laughs> top marks. But when it came time to get my TS, um, my recruiter told me, hey, just lie. Just tell me don't drink. Hmm. Um, I, I couldn't lie. I fudged a little bit. I, I toned it down, but I, I couldn't lie to them and say, this is you know, this is the truth. I swear on this. It's just who I am. Yeah. So the recruiter comes back and, hey, bad news. You didn't get counterintelligence. I'm like, well, you know, well then fuck it. Let me do the hardest thing the army has to offer. <laughs> um, so let me just, you know, as a big middle finger to you and everyone else around you and F you, I'm going to go be a ranger then. Mm. Um, so let me be the baddest, toughest thing the army has to offer. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a good insight into my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I spent four years in second rangers. It was, like I said, an interesting time to be in. What went through your head when you saw the towers go down? Just being brand new into that whole part of your career. What through my head when the towers go down? It, it, it's more of a, okay, you do this next, then do this, then the next thing, do this, right? So first thing, you pack your bags, okay? The next, you get your kit squared away, right? And then, like, I had never even worn body armor. So my, my learning curve was pretty vertical, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was focused on, on the packing list, right? Making sure every piece of kit and gear I had was perfect before I put it in the bag. 
And were you had you already joined the battalion at that point? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was I was at Range Battalion uh, for one month before Got before nine eleven happened. So and then, how soon uh, after the towers went down were you in theater? So let me back up. Towers fell. We deployed to Jordan shortly after that, and we all thought we were going to go from Jordan just over to to Afghanistan mm-hmm. or or Iraq. Who knows back then, right? I know. <laughs> um, so anyway, so we thought we were just going to just piggyback from Jordan, but this, this Jordanian training mission had been taken place or was planned for years in advance. So we continued with that while we were in Jordan. It was, um, I think, Charlie Company deployed to Afghanistan for the first time. But while we were in Jordan, I think, I, I don't recall. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I take it back. The whole battalion, the whole sec battalion went to Jordan. That's right. Um, it's been 20-some years, man. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I missed... Alpha Company's first combat deployment because I was in Ranger School. Um, I was upset they wouldn't pull me out of school to go with them for the first for the initial invasion of Afghanistan. So I missed that when when Second Battalion went for the first time. I was in school, so my first deployment was the invasion of Iraq, hmm. and I was a saw gunner. There's there's no better job in the army than Army Ranger saw gunner. Why is that? The weapon system is incredible. Is this in a chopper or where? Are no, you? no, saw gunner. It's a fully automatic, belt-fed weapon. That you're, it's a carrying correct, and, 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 you, and you operate it as if it's a support weapon or as if you're like you can you know, clear a room with it. Okay, right. So it's pretty versatile, and it lays a lot of um, a lot of firepower. That's why it's the best in your mind, or as a specialist in, in Army Ranger, it's the most fierce, debilitating weapon system for the squad size element. Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. That's intense. All right. <laughs> By design, um, you were in Iraq for a little bit. Correct. Um, when did you get to Afghanistan? Yeah, my first trip to Afghanistan in the Rangers, I think it was winter strike. About what time is this at? It was after we came back from Iraq. Um, we spent a short amount of time, and it was that winter. We went to winter strike. So mid-2003? Two, okay. Yeah, 2003. Okay. Yeah, winter 2003. I, I've read a few other Rangers actually write, write about winter strike. Mm-hmm. And I, I forgot how difficult it was. It was a 30-day deployment uh, in the winter in the mountains of Afghanistan. The objective was to deny enemies safe haven because this is where they go during the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So we did just, just patrol. Um, we patrolled the mountains just like ranger school style, mm-hmm. um, just like they, they did in Vietnam. We just we patrolled in squad size, sometimes team size elements. Mm-hmm. It's clear little villages. You go from, from terrain feature to terrain feature, and you know, we're all online you know, over grid squares. You know, just just bounding as as squads or platoons, uh, so it was it was interesting on, to do that. It, it was difficult. I think we all got dysentery at least once. Uh, I mean, we all got. I mean, we we're living in goat stables and boiling on water for food. Um, we we're out of food for a while, but that shit was was very memorable. Because of that, or some of the action you saw, if you don't mind me asking. No, because because of the uh, the weather. I mean. The, the weather, the terrain, what we were doing, I mean, just, you know, the, the patrols. Yeah. We didn't see any action on that trip. No bullets were fired. Our, our mission was to deny enemy safe haven, and mm-hmm. we did. Mm-hmm. Then uh, that's when you got into the contract work? Now, I did a, Afghanistan a few more times, and then I, I got out in 2005. Okay. I worked executive protection from 5 to 9. So 05 to 09, executive protection. Can I ask you a little bit about that? Please. What was that like? What was it like to, um, that's such a, uh, a different world than the average person is used to. And then certainly I'm sure from your perspective, it's a whole different world, you know, again, on top of that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating to see how these people live. Yeah, what'd you learn 
Well, I mean, when, when money is no object, right? When money is just a concept to you that doesn't mean anything whatsoever, right? I mean, just what these people do, what they get into, like their concept of reality is, is just shifted mm. because they're not plagued by the burden of, of finances, right? When money is no object, when all the gates are open, when you're able to freely think about building a business or have this, like this incredible innovative idea and money is an object, you can, you can pursue that with all your might mm -hmm. and it's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but also what I learned is that money does not buy class. Mm -hmm. I, I've worked at these, with some of these families, um, these absolute scumbags, really? absolute scumbags. Um, you know, one story in particular where I won't say who it is, but, um, that the wife of the number one client, she was notorious, um, for just, just firing people on the spot. Mm. Um, and so she was walking down the sidewalk in, in on her own property. And again, this is these, these kind of facilities. It's not just a regular single home. These are $40 million estates where it takes teams of gardeners, teams of mechanics and like maintenance guys and engineers like to keep all their crazy systems running, right? right. Well, this gardener was just squatting down, pulling weeds, you know, doing his job. Mm -hmm. And because he didn't stand up when she walked by, she fired him on a spot. Oh God. That... Right. So, so money doesn't buy class <laughs> right. at all. Mm. I mean, there, there are some scumbags out there, mm. right? So I, I can keep on going, but the family that I worked for in Hawaii um, are top shelf. Um, absolute top shelf. I thoroughly enjoyed just being around him um, and, and his family. Mm -hmm. The energy that he radiated, it, it helped me see things from different perspectives. It helped me see that, that really anything is possible or let me say that differently. Um, it helped me chase goals, mm. right? Mm. It, it, it fueled my overachiever personality, mm. right? Interesting. I don't mean for this question to be disrespectful. You're obviously a professional, but do you find that the differing of the clients, that polarity between some of those clients, does that affect the way that you do your job, even if sort of subconsciously or... Nope, not at all. Okay. Nope, not at all. Yeah. You just, nope. it, it, this it's is the, the same job. exact... Yeah, this is the job. There's a, there's a, um, a poem by Russ Vaughn um, called The Sheepdog Poem. It's what, what you're talking about, um, it was a problem right it, it was a problem I, I would get frustrated that these assholes don't realize i'm carrying a gun right i've got body armor on i i'm here to save your life why are you shitting on me mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um and you know these aren't things i would ever vocalize of course to to them or, mm -hmm. or anyone else but people in the security industry are typically looked look down upon so that that poem understanding that poem and internalizing it really has helped me kind of cross that bridge that, well, this is just who they are. They don't understand our world, mm -hmm. right? And I even have the last stanza tattooed down my ribs. What is it? Do you know it? Um, and the wolves will learn what we've shown them before. We love our sheep, we dogs of war. And it's a much longer poem, mm -hmm. but it talks about how the, the sheep shun the sheep dogs. Mm -hmm. The sheep shun them, they don't understand that we don't need you, we don't want you. Mm -hmm. Go away, uh, sheep dogs, go away, leave us alone, right? And then they keep on saying that until there's a wolf at their door. Mm -hmm. And then, hey, help us, right? Help us with sheepdogs. Mm -hmm. That's their nature, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's our, right, as the sheepdog to understand we can't change their point of view. That's just who they are, mm -hmm. right? We are who we are. You know, it, it's really helped me through some, some frustrating times dealing with ungrateful people. Mm-hmm.
It's sad to hear that. I would imagine that's frustrating. I mean, I, I think to some degree, a lot of people are feeling that just on an average everyday level right now yeah. with everything that's going on in the world. And, and there's a number of people in society that are saying, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to ring the bell. Right. Sheepdog type energy. That's the problem. Let's, right. you know, yeah. and then just other people uh, just going to get their Starbucks and, right. yeah, uh, and or shitting on those people right. for fear mongering. It's like, no. The, you know, you, you put the brakes on when you come up to a tight corner. Right, That's common right. sense. Right. It's using wisdom. Moving back to Afghanistan, let's the lead up to the withdrawal, the botched withdrawal, which I put in quotation marks. How long a time period were you there leading up to? So after I got out of the army, I re-entered Afghanistan in 2009. Uh, so from 2009 to 2015, um, I was in Afghanistan. Does that answer your question? Yep. Okay. Yep. Something I think the average person understands is the type of relationships that you guys made over there. Right. Explain to us some of the friendships or connections that you had over there, why you made them, and what they meant to you. Because I think, you know, some people probably just think, oh, our military guys are over there. We pulled them home, and they're home. They're safe. So that's all the thought they put into it. What kind of relationships did you have over there? Uh, you mean with the Afghans? Yeah. With locals? Oh, they're yeah. good people. Yeah. I mean, generally good people. Of course, there's you know, there's bad guys everywhere, right? But generally, they're good people. I mean, on the core level, we're all basically the same. Mm-hmm. We all want to take care of our families. Mm-hmm. We all move towards things that we enjoy. We move away from things we don't like, right? We move away from pain. We move towards pleasure. Um, you know, we all want to take care of our, our family and friends. And we all got bills to pay or we have food to prepare, or, mm-hmm. you know, prepare for. So these people, it's tragic what the United States government has gotten them into. It's tragic. So it's my understanding that when you guys first went over there, that there was an extension to the Afghans that said, hey, if you support us, we'll protect you, we'll, we'll support you, etc. Yeah. Um, and so alliances were made. And um, this is over the course of a couple of decades, right. at least. And so when the pullout happened, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, there was a lot of those allies that were left behind. Yep. Did they give you an indication as to what the operation was about when you were first starting to get over there? Was there a goal, an objective? The easiest way to describe it is, so September 11th never happens again, mm-hmm. right? That was our mission. Go over there, so September 11th never happens again. So on my first rotation as a contractor, or right above the door when you walk into the main office to have your initial brief and greeting, there's a big placard, or big sign that says, today is September 12th, mm. 2001. Mm. And, and that's, that stuck with me. Um, it stuck with me because, you know, we're, we're here, that mission, right, in Afghanistan, right, both trips as, as a you know, service member or as a contractor was so that event never happens again, mm-hmm. right? And that's what we were all fed, right? That's what we all believed. Keeping them on their heels. Right. Um, so September 11th never happens again. Gotcha. Correct. Gotcha. As a sort of civilian watching all of this unfold over the last few decades. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that, that was fed to me as well. And the, and I certainly bought into that war against terror. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're hearing pushback a little bit like, well, well what is that exactly? Do you remember, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on President Bush. What's the end goal here? Um, and, and he had that big mission accomplished ceremony thing because when does terror ever end and like there's always going to be terror right so it, it sounded like a blank check to feed the military industrial complex and so i think as i've matured and, and seen a few laps more around the sun you start to see some patterns and you go ah, was that the wisest thing to do as a as a service man would you prefer that there's a clear objective or did, you know, at the time, did that just, like you said, I guess that made sense. And Right. Yeah, I, I seriously, and I wholeheartedly agree. At that time, we all, we all 
uh, believed what the TV said, mm-hmm. right? We believed it. Um, the information we got, you know, was open source information. We didn't receive anything top secret about you know the big picture, right? I was mm-hmm. just a you know a ranger team leader. Mm-hmm. So we all believed what the TV said. All of us, even even through my time contracting, we still believe what the TV said. But over the years, as we're all seeing uh, more and more of the corruption, we're seeing the curtain get pulled back further and further. We're seeing that, well, wait a minute, this might not be the whole story. Mm-hmm. There might be more to it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which we now, uh, we, we now know that, right? So when I was in the Rangers, I was in um, I'm a sec battalion, Alpha Company, 1st platoon. I served with Pat Tillman. Mm. Pat Tillman was in 2nd platoon. Mm. This is the first time I've ever uttered his name in any conversation about anything that's being recorded or using, they're going to be um, saying his name. Um, moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. And I do it on purpose. One of my real good friends, I, I won't say who it is, because he also, for the same reason, doesn't want to gain anything off of Pat's name. I'm not mentioning Pat because of I'm looking for gain. I'm mentioning it because it helped me understand that what you see on TV mm-hmm. might not be the true story. Mm-hmm. We, we got to that valley a couple hours after, after the tick happened. Troops in contact, tick. A couple hours after it happened, it was already done and over, and uh, uh, Pat was already deceased. As we were leaving Second Platoon Place, we heard rumors that it might have been friendly fire. Mm-hmm. And it eventually came out that, un- unfortunately, it was. But when I saw it on the TV, it wasn't what really happened, right? So it wasn't the first time I started to question what the TV was saying, but it was definitely a time when I know for a fact the TV is lying. Mm-hmm. And there's been multiple times when I've, when I've seen this and experienced this where reality isn't matching what this box is saying. I'm, I'm skeptical of, of everything. I always need to know the how and the why of whatever I'm being told or mm-hmm. taught or anything I'm trying to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to know the big picture. As Americans are quickly realizing that there's a whole lot more to the story than what the TV says, yeah. right? Yep. I, uh, I've experienced that a couple times just in my limited uh, experience as well. Ferguson was 20 minutes away from where I lived um, the day after Mike Brown got shot. I went down there. And I'm not putting rose-colored glasses on, but it was incredibly peaceful. There definitely was tension. And as a white guy going down there, you could feel the eyeballs. Oh, wow. yeah. But I had a couple friends that right. uh, were known in the community and, and sort of escorted me around. And, right. um, you know, it was hands up, don't shoot. And, you know, I let them know I'm not here to, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying. I just wanted to see for my own eyes since it literally was in my backyard. Right. Um, showed us where he had gotten killed. There's still blood on the street. People were singing church hymns. Uh, families were out. Um, I talked to other people and they were talking about how, hey, the, the world's eyes are on us. Let's show them who we really right. are. That's interesting. Right. It was fascinating. We never saw that. Go home. Yeah. 30 minutes later right. and you think the world is burning down uh, to the point where it's making national news and literally I'm down there and I'm watching you know there was a corner gas station that did burn a little bit well the, the media lens is zoomed way in you know on that and literally a block away yeah. you know people are having dinner and you almost wouldn't even know that that was happening right. it's despicable it yeah. really is yeah. I mean it's so clear that it's a product that right. they're selling and until we awaken and realize that we're buying that product, mm-hmm. we're never really going to get the truth because it's too profitable. Right. The rate at which people are awakening to realize that the TV is propaganda, mm-hmm. I think that rate is increasing exponentially. Agreed. And it's fascinating. There's no other time 
I would like to be alive than right now. Mm. It's it's so fun to watch what's happening with our culture and with um, with media. We're essentially either going to collapse from a first world to a third world, or we're going to prosper. It's, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, do you think it's possible that we might? crash into the world and then revive and uh, who knows anything's possible yeah right uh it is certainly interesting it's um there's so much going on right now but going back to afghanistan for a second walk us through what was happening maybe a few months before the pullout were you guys getting indications that this was coming obviously there was a change of presidency where are you mentally emotionally with what's happening and oh, with, with the pullout yeah well the pullout did this happen last year yeah I found out about it on the news. Gotcha. Right. Um, this past couple, couple of years, I've been working as a uh, as a security contractor, but here in the United States, gotcha. um, primarily actually in Minneapolis, I wasn't really even aware that it was collapsing. I don't keep in contact with, with really with anyone who, mm. who still continues to deploy or is over there. So mm-hmm. I had really no connection to Afghanistan other than, I mean, I can find people if I needed to, but you know, it, it's out of my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like to look forward instead of backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something I did in that time of my life, and you know I've got other goals. So no, I wasn't actively watching. I, I think the first indicator that I realized something was completely awry was when I saw those people um, hanging on the C-17, hanging on the landing, landing gear. gear on the yeah. C-17, on, and then falling to their death. Yeah. Like that was the moment I realized, whoa, like this is a disaster, yeah. an absolute disaster. Sort of leading up to that, we'll get into that. The first article that went that went crazy viral. Uh, one of my good buddies, uh, Matthew Griffin, he's a CEO of CombatFlipFlops.com. Okay. I don't think he knew that I I, I enjoyed writing. Um, he and I weren't that close. We, we served together in Second Battalion. Uh, Griff was a FO. I was a team leader, so there's no reason for me to ever like exchange word with him. Um, so I didn't really even talk to him until years after we both got out of the, got out of the army. We have a similar mindset with a lot of topics. I mean, he sent me something he wrote, and uh, Griff's a real smart guy, he's a West Point graduate, real intelligent guy, and but I can tell that what he was trying to say in this this piece he wrote just just missed the mark. Mm. It, it didn't have the venom that it needed. So he, he sent it to me, hey Scott, when you get a moment, can you, you know take a look at this, tell you what you think. I just I need to write something, I need to do something. Because Afghanistan, you know, is falling and his mm-hmm. business is collapsing because mm-hmm. he owns a, a a shoe factory in Afghanistan employing Afghan women, right? Sending women to school, mm-hmm. so it, he does a tremendous amount of good for for the people. So as his outlet, he wrote something and just asked me, "Hey, take a look at this." It was on Google Docs. As I make changes, he can see my changes, and it's like a living document. We can both we can both see it. Yeah. So I, I, I rewrote. Um, a lot of the document, but I made it sharp. Um, I, I, I clarified exactly what he's trying to say, and I, I twisted a knife. Um, so, so the article is called Written in Taliban, written from the point of view of the Taliban, essentially thanking the United States. Um, it's sharp, and I was able to just pour rage into this, into this article. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say that I, I like to write with emotion. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I use um, emotion as, as my medium. Um, in the same way Van Gogh uses color, texture, or form. So mm-hmm. I write with emotion, mm-hmm. and I, I poured rage into this into this piece. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sharpened it, and if I knew it was going to go as, as crazy viral as as it as it did, I would have spent more than like forty five <laughs> minutes just like glancing over it. Mm. You know, I would have read it like a second time, mm. right? But I started from the top, I rewrote it, I hit send, here you go, and we went to go get ice cream with my wife. 
you know, she's banging on the glass. Hurry up, let's go. Hurry up, let's go. So, you know, anyway, so I'm already enraged just yeah. typing this thing about what's happening. And I, hold on a second, hold on a second. So anyway, so I, I send it off and it, it went, like I said, it went crazy viral. Well, at that time, I had been banned from Facebook and Twitter for like two years. So I just, you know, copied the link. Like, hey, my buddy, you know, you know for, from his website. Hey, check out this web, you know, the article me and my friend wrote. And everybody I sent it to, like in a direct message, like, holy shit, you wrote that? I'm like, yeah, man. Like, everyone said they can't open their Facebook or any social media without it seeing it reposted everywhere. Yeah. So, wow, I wish I could get on Facebook and comment, you know? Um, so it, it did really well. And uh, the only criticism that, that I've, I've seen from it is the title, written in Taliban. Mm-hmm. And like what I like to say, the title really foreshadows what the article is about because the article talks about how the you know, U.S. general officer has never really understood the Taliban, right? So uh, of course I know Taliban isn't a language. You can't write something in Taliban, right? right? So it, it's sort of a play on words, like what to expect in the article. Mm-hmm. I, I like to say it's, it's a filter to deny anyone with a closed mind from reading this thing, mm. right? If you read the title and say it's stupid, well then the filter worked, mm. right? So it's a filter for the open-mindedness. That's interesting. Um, there was a couple of quotes that I pulled out of it that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, first and foremost, you wrote a three-part series. Um, this was the first article. Correct. Uh, or at the time, maybe it was just, you didn't necessarily know it was gonna be a series. I Correct, yeah, so so this this article, like I said, it, it went, you know, it was very popular and it still resonates with people you know, I was surprised, right? I, I would like to write for a living one day. All right. Well, this is a great first at bat. Right? Uh-huh. Well, if you all like this, I've got a whole lot more to say. <laughs> so I wrote um, Last Plane Out of Kabul. And uh, the Havoc Journal published that one. And that did, that did very well as well. Um, it's a long piece. But that one resonated with people. And it's... Um, but I didn't want to end it on um, a negative note. Yeah. I wanted to end on some kind of positive looking forward, right? So I, I wrote another piece called uh, today September 12th 2001 mm-hmm. right a throwback to that very first sign I saw entering Fab Jalalabad so that's that's on the welcome sign you know those in the know know what the, where that's from yeah and you know that did, did well also and that's just a blog on my website I, I talk about that morning you know being a brand new army ranger private what I went through and what, what it was like mm. when when the specialist breed banged on the door flew it open turned on the lights like from that moment what was it like mm-hmm so it, it talks more of optimism looking forward and it talks about, you know, I always like to say that I'm an eternal optimist, right? Mm-hmm. So it ends on a positive note. Knowing what some of the stories that you've shared and what you've been through, the fact that you like to end things on an upward note is really, really, really inspiring. For myself, I've not come even close to dealing with some of the, the conflict and tragedy and trauma that I'm sure you've gone through. And so to know that there are individuals that have persevered through some of the ugliest humanity has to offer. It gives me hope. Um, Thank you. And it's, uh, it's really, really powerful. I want to go back to your first, the first article written in Taliban. I mean, we could read the whole freaking article because every, like almost every sentence is like, whoa, tell me more about that. You know what was interesting about that <laughs> is when it was initially released, there was a radio station in Seattle that the DJ read it start to finish mm. uninterrupted mm. during rush hour. Mm. That was incredible. Wow. I, I never heard it. I wish I did. Griff told me that they read it on the air start to finish. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Interesting. We'll yeah. have, to, have to get a copy of that somehow. Yeah, I, I even know what radio station did, though. Um, again, this is written from the perspective of the Taliban. I thought this was really interesting. You said, would you mind reading it? Or do you want me, is, yeah, you go want ahead, me to read it? Go ahead, please. Uh, okay, so you go... 
Uh, we will give your fighters credit, meaning the U.S. fighters, U.S. warriors. Some are creative, tenacious, and fierce. They outgun us in every way possible. But again, we simply wait them out. Allah is patient. You cycle them through our holy lands every three to 12 months for their combat rotations. After their tour is complete, they return to the comfort of their warm beds and endless entertainment. If you left them here in our holy land with no way out but to win, then you might have had a chance of success. Um, I thought that was fascinating because of the psychology of winning. Tell me more about that. Like you talked about 30 days, you know, the winter in Afghanistan is brutal. If you didn't have, essentially, if you're burning the boats, you had no way out. Mm-hmm. What is that? What would that look like? You know, if that was U.S. policy to fight in that way, wouldn't our conflicts be a lot quicker? Right. <laughs> and we'd probably save be. a lot more men. And- but you'd also not have anyone enlist. Yeah. Right? Why so? Just because of the brutality or? Who wants to do that? Right. right. War is terrible. Right. Right. So you have to have these you know, one-year deployments or 30-day deployments yeah. to give people a break. human brain isn't designed to participate in sustained combat. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're fragile species. For sure. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting about that article was what you mentioned a minute ago about the leadership. Again, this is from the perspective of the Taliban. Your retired generals, quote-unquote, earn tens of thousands of dollars talking to your political industrial and financial leaders about teams winning and discipline. It's a mockery of the war they refuse to fight. It's a mockery of the infidel warriors who died in our lands. We urge you to continue following their uh, vicious personalities so that we can further watch your once great nation collapse. The word that came to me when I was reading these when they first went viral was uh, gutted. Like what I was experiencing you guys from an arm's length from a civilian watching you guys, it seemed like you guys were absolutely gutted, and, I, and I'm getting pissed off thinking about it right now. Um, the American response was, uh, oh, well, let me, let me keep scrolling. Yeah, what's let next? me keep scrolling. What's, what's, next? what's next? Endless entertainment. And I've been telling this to people. There is a spiritual cost to a nation that refuses to, at the very least, tip your cap. Hey, what's going on over there? Are you guys okay? How can we help? You, for men and women that are putting everything on the line for the collective response, at least from my perspective, to be a, a little bit of a raised eyebrow. Ooh, whew, that doesn't look good. And then the shrug of the shoulders like, well, I can't do anything about it. It infuriates me. Um, I can't even begin to imagine what that's like for it's, you. It's the same feeling I get when someone thanks me for my service. Tell me why. It, it enrages me. Well, it? enrage isn't the right word. It irritates me okay. when someone says, hey, thank you for your service. Mm. I, I know it's a shallow, meaningless gesture like asking, hey, how are you doing? Like, mm. I don't really care how you're doing. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I see you in a grocery store, I got other things I need to do. All right, I got to get home. I got to big dinner. I got to finish grocery shopping. I got stuff to do. Hey, Peter, how's it going? Right? Well, oh, I'm not doing it. I mean, if, you, if you go in this long dissertation of how bad you're doing, people don't care. Yeah, I didn't mean no, that. Yeah, no one cares. Like, right. Everyone just wants to hear, oh, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. Right? Let's That's go it. through the motions. Yeah, no one really cares. Yeah. No one really cares. Um, and I'm also, I, I get irritated when someone thanks me for my service because the average person, and again, I'm not mad at the person, sure. right? Um, but they don't realize the way veterans are treated. Mm. And, and I write about this in Last Plane. I, I say that we're treated like, like we're an expended round. 
mm-hmm. where we're inventoried, we're cared for, right? We're polished, where we make sure we're the best, right? Until until we're fired, right? And then we're just a piece of hot brass, mm-hmm. right? We're laying in the mud, just getting stepped on by the next wave of advancing stormtroopers, mm-hmm. right? And here all these veterans are, are struggling in the mud or struggling for, hey, I need help or, hey, this is going on. Well, it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? Because you're not part of the group anymore. Mm-hmm. So I always like to say, you know, if you can't afford the meal, then don't or the food, mm-hmm. right? Because caring for veterans is the price of war, mm-hmm. right? Just because they're out of the military doesn't mean that they don't still need care. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of veterans out there who need care. It's something that I, I would like to have civilians understand on just some, just conceptualize on this level, but I don't want people to feel self-conscious about thanking anyone for their service, sure. right? Because some people generally appreciate that and, mm-hmm. and being a veteran for that you know four-year time frame it really embodies our entire personality you know i was an army ranger for four years that's not who i am mm-hmm. right? i did it for four years mm-hmm. right i was a contractor for a couple of years there's more to me than mm-hmm. what i've done in my past mm-hmm. right i you know generally say thank you and, and move along mm-hmm. but um it's my level of disgust that that i feel i feel used right i feel dirty i, I feel like i help globalists achieve one more step closer to total slavery. When did you come to that realization? That you're dealing with globalists and not altruistic freedom, that there's other influences and manipulations? I, I, I can't put a, an exact finger on, on the exact moment. It's really a culmination of a lifetime of experience and observation, um, a lifetime of questioning the why and the how, right? Questioning everything from you know, from the towers you know, going down to, yeah. you know, if, if Pat Tillman was killed by friendly fire or, or else, right? Mm-hmm. So you constantly question everything and ask why, why, why. I, I, I enjoy learning the why and the how of, of, of everything. I don't take anything for granted. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was scratching my head when it happened was the chopper that went down, That the biggest... Um, extortion 17? The Extortion 17. Yeah. That there just seemed to be a lot of questions around that that didn't seem to make sense. Yeah, there, there's a lot of questions about a lot of things, and that's that's one of them. There's too many coincidences not to come to the conclusion that maybe the U.S. government doesn't have your best interest in mind. Fuck, that's scary. Quite honestly, it's I mean, it's a, it's a reality. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, it's a reality that for me, the Afghan pullout amplified. Well, the only real purpose of a government is to keep itself in power what better way to stay in power than perpetuating endless war mm-hmm. so what do we do when we you know, left afghanistan we, we gave them about 85 billion dollars worth of gear yep and the only cache of weapons that the dod did destroy was co-located in the panjir valley those are allies right scratching your head right so so why did why was that cache destroyed why did they destroy our allies weapons Good question. Yeah, yeah. So then it leaves the question, well, who's on our side? Who's Mm -hmm. not on our side? Mm -hmm. What's the morale of the warriors out there when this stuff is happening? I can't speak for everybody, right? I mean, I have a tight-knit circle of friends, and we all deal with it in our own way. We talk, we have conversations, right? I share my my point of view. They give me their point of view, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes up, sometimes down. But when it was falling, I felt that I needed to do something. Um, I couldn't just sit by and be angry and, and hit, you know, send on, on or share on a Facebook post or Instagram post, whatever. You know, I had to do something besides just forwarding a message, right? And that's maybe a good segue into into the post-Afghanistan work that I did. So I, 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 I saw a lot of celebrities. I saw a lot of blue check marks. You know, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I've my only really social 
So I've seen a lot of blue check marks. Well, saying this is what I would do. This is why it was a failure, or this is the best way. It's how we should have done it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in, instead of standing on your soapbox, why don't you fucking do something, mm-hmm. right? Well, mm-hmm. this is what I did. Uh, one of my good friends, a guy I contracted with, he knew that I was still actively, you know, looking for you know stuff to do. He knew I was I was available. I was in between contracts, so he was connected with this organization called Operation Freedom Birds, OFB. And they're they're nonprofit five hundred one three C and their their mission was to um, save stranded allies Americans um, Afghan allies the tier one tier two um, SIV visa holders there was a whole list of people that they were intending on saving and they had lists of people that needed to get out to include Americans and and the dogs so my buddy was connected with them and the, Operation Freedom Birds was uh, it, it was run by like low level politicians. Mm. Um, Republican, but it doesn't matter. Low-level politicians or staffers or people who are connected to other people. Well, one person who was in there was Representative Adam Kitzinger. I can never say that guy's name. <laughs> um, but he, he was part of this whole organization. I knew nothing about this guy. Nothing whatsoever. Um, he was on a bunch of our conference calls. But anyway, so my buddy called me up. He was like, hey, do you want to be an escort? There's this nonprofit that's gearing up for this mission to bring people from from Afghanistan to the United States. Mm. And they're just need people to escort these people from point A to point B. Like, yeah, it's three days, I can do that. Well, it's, it's more complicated than just you know booking a flight. So we had two-day conference calls for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and it was a, a lot of effort. I took notes through the whole time and I stayed quiet. I just listened because sometimes there's like 30 or 40 people on these calls. I don't know who they are. I have mm. no idea who these people are. Mm. I just know there's a bunch of politicians in here and a bunch of other heads of other groups. I think there's guys from Pineapple Express. I think they're in there. Anyway, a bunch of other people, a bunch of other groups, right? Uh, my role as an escort, I realized I can bring more to the table than just being a trigger puller or just you know being an escort. Mm-hmm. Right? This was a non-security mission. We weren't going to be armed or anything. I, I realized, well, you know, content creates action. Like your website's terrible. Um, so I, I had conversations, you know, initially. Well, I can do this. Well, how about this? What if you rewrite this part of your website because it's confusing what if you do this uh, well, uh, and I realized that still it, it wasn't going to work we needed more content so one of my real good buddies uh, Russ Pritchard he, he's a full-time writer from Jersey he said well why don't we write stories about Afghans you know yeah that's a great idea so we can write a story a day is what we boasted mm. we interviewed at least one person a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. We were just bombarded. Our first story, it was an American who, uh, it was a love story of a guy who, who was stranded. But then every other story after that was these Afghans. Mm. And word got out that Scott and Russ are writing stories about us. Mm. I had my, my personal phone number and my phone was ringing nonstop. Mm. I, eventually I, I just couldn't answer it all the time. Mm-hmm. So these people would tell us you know, what they did for the United States, where they were, they were hiding, what what happened, what's going on, what it's like on the ground. And Russ and I would write these stories about what's happening. And they're not terribly long, 500 to 1,000 words. Um, but again, we were just trying to just produce as much content as possible with the goal of generating money to further uh, fuel this this incredible endeavor of bringing Afghans back. Uh, that was a hectic time. That was that, that was right when you messaged me initially, and mm-hmm. I said, "Hey, Peter, I'm I'm super busy, man. Mm-hmm. My, my bandwidth is, is maxed out." And mm-hmm. I was, I mean, I was writing and you know, working on this project at least, I don't know, 12, 13 hours a day wow. so on my computer, writing, taking notes, staying organized, and all those stories are on my on my website. Here's an interesting aside story. 
during this this time when we're we're writing all these stories, we came across this story. Um, it was an all stop moment, mm. right? All stop, like everything on pause. We need to get together and talk about this because this is this is a pretty big deal. So the same day that those thirteen Marines died, right? Mm-hmm. There was also a massacre in the Khyber district in Afghanistan where thirteen Afghans died. Strange coincidence. So one of the survivors of this massacre. Um, his in hiding with his like 10 or 11 family members was able to contact Russ and they started communication. The story of the Kyder District Massacre hasn't really been told yet. It's, it's been it leaked out a couple times, but the true story hasn't been told and Russ and I are going to write a book about it. Mm. Well, this is a, the summary of what happened, what's going on. Um, a few publications got a little of the details, but no one knows what we've been up to. And it's, it's, it's horrific. So Taliban took over Afghanistan and in the Khyber district, all the Afghan police and all the good guys, all the white hats, right? Um, they all agreed, okay, Taliban, we will surrender. We're going to give you our guns. We're going to give you our trucks. We're going to give you all of our gear. And, you know, we, we submit. You win. Well, the, the village elders set this meeting up. And when it came time for the day of the swap, they realized it was the red unit that was arriving. Um, the red unit, Taliban red unit, they're not negotiators, they're hit squad. So they, they, they bound all these people, hands tied behind their back, and they executed them. Hmm. Some got away, um, a bunch of civilians were killed, this indiscriminate fire, right, RPG. One of the guys who got away had several of his family members killed in that massacre, and he was in hiding. And he you know, understands that Russ and I have a way to move people around Right? We had all kind of the whole underground railroad network of safe houses that were, were coordinating with, with guys on the ground. And so we, we moved this guy to another location that was safer, which was actually like 100 meters away from a Taliban checkpoint. Uh, so these people couldn't walk around the house in the daytime. It had to be a vacant house. So they would just lay on the floor um, all day long. Well, we, we presented this information to Freedom Birds. Hey, this, this is a big deal. So at that time, what was happening in the news cycle was... They said the Taliban was trying to get a seat on the UN, okay? Well, that the story of this massacre would be information to deny them a seat because it's a clear violation of human rights. Mm -hmm. These guys surrendered and they're just plain executed. Um, James Young from Freedom Birds, I'm saying his name on purpose several times in this interview because the guy's a snake. So he promised the world, hey, if you can give us more information, put it together in a packet because we can't just go to Congress with, hey, these two writers are talking to this guy, this happened. No, they need proof. They need video evidence. They need statements. They need pictures. They need a whole lot of information. So this guy, who was promised the first 11 seats on the first plane that left Afghanistan, we promise you, if you do all this stuff, if you gather all this information for us, we promise you'll be on the first thing out of here, right? And this guy's Mm -hmm. 23 years old. He's a kid. What's his position? I think he was maybe a translator... I don't recall. I, I don't recall, but his English was impeccable. I spoke to him a few times. He's been interviewed in a few different places, and I'll, I'll get to that. Anyway, so this, this, this kid, right, he's terrified. He, he went back to the Khyber district where the Taliban were there now as a stronghold and was talking to people and getting statements and taking pictures. And, like, he's not a spy, right? He's terrified. So he, he gave us all his information, and we finally got it. And I, I put it together in a PowerPoint presentation. What's an interesting side note of how our government works is they told us, all right, we need you to make two presentations. One, make it as if you're presenting it to a room of fifth graders, right? Make your PowerPoint as if it's 
to room of fifth graders, but also we want you to write another like long piece and be as detailed as you possibly can. Include more information that isn't even relevant to the story, but make it long, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, the piece for the fifth graders goes to Congress. <laughs> I was just going to say. And then the long piece with more information that they need yeah. goes to the 20-year-old staffers, uh, right? Yeah. So the staffers will read the long piece to tell the Congress people which way to go, what, what to do. It's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. It is pathetic. Right? Yeah. So anyway, so no, I'm not doing two pieces. I'm doing one piece, and here it is. Um, and you can find that piece on my website. I actually uploaded it. You can mm -hmm. download the full PDF on the website. So we, we were promised a sit-down face-to-face with Condoleezza Rice. We were promised a sit-down meeting with this committee, that committee, another committee, all these other, other committees that we're, we were promised once we get this, then we're going to move forward with extracting these people. Well, I don't know the exact reason why this information was throttled down or, or silenced or what. I don't know the exact reason why, but I, I, I have strong suspicions um, it was because we weren't actively bashing the Biden administration. Hmm. And, and this Freedom Birds organization, I told you, is, is run by low-level Republicans. James Young is a Republican strategist. There's snakes on both sides of the House, Republicans hmm. and Democrats. Hmm. And because Russ wouldn't bash Biden during this, this interview that Russ gave at the Af Afghan embassy in D.C. The, the article was essentially nixed. Oh, that's right. infuriating. Well, that's reality, right? It is reality, yeah. but to have to filter everything through a fucking political lens every single time right. instead of just saying, problem, yeah. solution, yeah. let's go. Like, but it should all be rallying. It's one it. more drop in the bucket that says, hey, maybe the U.S. government doesn't have our best interest in mind. Right. They don't care about right. you. They don't care about Afghanistan. Right. All they care about is staying in power, right? So these are hard lessons that you you can tell someone, but unless you experience it firsthand, people likely just won't connect with it. They're, right. just, they're just sayings, right? right. Um, so anyway, so that story you know, fizzled out and while Russ and I continue to ramp up writing these daily stories. Mm -hmm. Fast forward now. So I, I eventually bowed out rather disrespectfully to, to that mission, not to helping Afghans, but to those organizations. Mm -hmm. There was an incident where one of my closest friends, they flew him to Country X. Um, he was there to, to gain some more information. They didn't provide him with the necessary paperwork he needed to have the meetings with the ambassadors that were scheduled because one of the people who were in that organization was out binge drinking in Nashville, right? And that infuriated me, mm -hmm. right? Again, these are 20-something staffers. Right, so I'm following these people on Instagram, seeing what they're doing while I'm working, you know, people's lives 14, on the line. 14 hours yeah. a day, right, to help their careers. Afghans are struggling, and I'm watching this, you know, this this chick binge drink in Nashville when my buddy in a in a jail, right? He got into a bar fight, he was attacked, so now here he is, like this lone American all by himself in Country X, being extorted. Hmm. I was enraged, right? So there was there's too many sharks in the water. In the post-Afghanistan rescue mission space, people are in it for themselves. You know, like, like this Freedom Birds organization, all the money that they generated based off of our written words, our mm -hmm. articles, mm -hmm. our time and effort, they wouldn't release to buy food for the people who we were writing about. Well, I, I can't even begin to... Like, what's the whole fucking point of your... I mean... Money. Granted, it's money. Uh, just I fucking... Well, this, this organization is even collecting money for Ukraine now. 
right? Yeah. Jump on that bandwagon. Yeah. Right? They're, they're scumbags. They're all scumbags. They just jump up in front of a social cause, yeah. suck up all the, the yeah. goodwill, and Yeah, it's pocket. disgusting, man. It's, it's disgusting. disgusting. It's politicians. Yeah. With, with all of this sharks in the water, snakes, broken promises, you know, you guys come home and, you know, there's PTSD from, I imagine, the stuff that happens on uh, in the field out there, but then to have all of this on top of it. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that and, and, and potentially some of the other people that you've worked with? What do we need to know about that? How can we better support you guys? Right. Good question. So how do I maintain distance from it and not have it continue to affect me? Um, I believe that I, I've achieved that by developing a different perspective. I have a different view on, on that injury. PTSD or PTS is what some people are now wanting to refer to it as because it's not a disorder. And I, I agree 100%. It's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Tom Satterley mentioned that on... Correct. Yeah. That was a great podcast you did. Yeah. Uh, real, um, those Delta Force guys are superheroes in, yep. in my eyes. Uh, top shelf guys. I have nothing but positive things to ever say about, about Delta Force guys. Mm-hmm. I've worked with them uh, numerous times while in the Army and while as a contractor. Those, you know, top shelf guys. What's the difference in your mind? What do you mean? Between a Delta Force soldier and Ranger or SEAL for that matter. I mean, obviously there's different right. tactical uh, expertises, um, but like psychologically, or, right. or is it just a matter of skill sets? Uh, so think of it as if uh, Delta Force is a surgeon with a scalpel. Okay. Right? They want to delicately remove that mole. Um, Rangers will go in with a chainsaw and cut <laughs> off the arm. Okay. Right? Okay. It, it's relatively same mission mm-hmm. looking for HVTs right Delta Force again th- these guys are true spooks hats off to them they're, they're superheroes in my eyes but what, what Rangers are they're, they're light infantry unit they're, they're small element light infantry and you know, special operations so mm-hmm. you get all the cool toys it's a volunteer unit you have to you know, want to be there it's more difficult to stay there than it is to get there mm-hmm. so but how is it different than let's say for example Air Force mm-hmm. right we'll just use that as a broad example mm-hmm. So I will never be disparaging against anyone's service, right? I know there's a lot of poking fun at, at people, right? People mm-hmm. like to say it's, it's chair force, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> well, it's true, right? But it's, that way for, it's designed that way on purpose, right? Because everyone can't be an army ranger. So it's a certain kind of person who they select for that kind of position, mm-hmm. right? Well, Air Force, you don't need to have that level of discipline. You don't need to have that level of, of commitment. You don't need to have that level of precision. So they don't want people to be, i uh, use the word institutionalized. They mm-hmm. want them to think for themselves. Mm-hmm. They want to have, be able to solve problems. Because if you're a pilot, you want to have the best person for the job. You don't want them to be stressed out about, oh my God, I hope I don't break this thing, mm-hmm. right? You want them to be able to solve the problem, think outside the box, right? So the same thing you know, with the SEALs. Right. Typically, all seals act the same, and that's that way on purpose. Right. You, you want to have an egomaniac monster. Right. <laughs> that's typically the typical seal. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the running joke is how many Navy seals does it take to change a light bulb? Mm-hmm. It takes one. He holds on to it, and the world revolves around him. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, how do you know there's a Navy seal in a room with you? Mm. He'll tell you. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, but it's designed that way on purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. So these guys are egomaniacs on purpose. Right, Delta Force, you know, quiet professionals on purpose. So, and, and anyway, so none of this is by accident, right? The military isn't isn't set up this way. Oh, it's a good thing it turned out this way. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's all on purpose, mm-hmm. right? So 
what's the difference between you know Delta and, and Army Rangers? Well, from an operational standpoint, I already mentioned it's a scalpel versus a, Makes versus sense. a chainsaw, right? Um, but from um, like a psychological perspective, right? Delta is is much more experienced or older, right? They're wiser, right? Rangers. I say it's an entry level special operations unit. Gotcha. Because it's a relatively easy process to get there. Maybe it was easy for me. But it's a relatively easy process to get there. You do a basic training, um, you jump school, you do the selection process, which is now RASP, um, and then you go to, the, to your unit. But from there, even though you wear the scroll on your shoulder, you're an Army Ranger, but you're not Ranger qualified yet. you got to go to Ranger school. Mm. Once you come back, and then you're one of the boys. Then you're accepted. Mm-hmm. But until then, you're private. Mm. You just do all the chores, you get you get harassed. They're trying to make you quit, mm. right? So it's harder to stay there than it is to get there, mm-hmm. right? So, but th- that isn't true in like Delta Force, for example, mm-hmm. right? Those, those guys have achieved, right? They're, they're there, right? So it, it, again, just diff- different animals, different yeah. missions, everything's designed the way the military wants it to be designed. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, going back to PTS for a second, you were on a train of thought there. I derailed you. Where were we? Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Yeah. Right. Um, apparently now here it is in 2022. It's socially acceptable to talk about your medical conditions openly. So let's let's have a conversation about yeah, it. Yeah. I, I have a different perspective on, on that injury. I have to know the how and a why of a thing. Um, it, it's very rare I take something at face value. Right. I, I need to understand the mechanics of it. I absolutely love physics and you know, physics and philosophy argue one of the same, but. Anyway, so to understand that the physics of it, understand the why, right? Like, how does this work? Like, what happens? You don't just say, hey, you had this injury, now go about your day. Well, I had to, need to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So it, it really goes back to um, fight or flight, okay? Fight or flight is, it's your body's response to a life-threatening situation. Um, so I present a situation, I put a, I put a gun in your face, right? Your body recognizes this is a life-threatening situation, so fight or flight kicks in, and your body, therefore, gives you all the tools you need necessary to save your life. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a, a bucket of tools, right? You get a massive dose of adrenaline, your cortisol spikes, right? Cortisol is a stress hormone, and weird things happen to your memory, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. So now you're given these tools, right? right? So either fight for your life, or you run to save your life, mm-hmm. okay? Well, it's this feature, this added bonus feature has been developed through evolution. So think back to our ancestors, like out on the savanna. So our ancestors who had the propensity to have their, their brains dump this these hormones in their blood, well, they statistically had more of a chance of survival than the, the humans who didn't have that feature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So over great lengths of time, Right? That the humans who had this ability to achieve massive strength right away or to have these, these hormones to help you see the solution more clearly, well, those humans, their, their genes propagated, and the ones who didn't have this feature, they didn't propagate. Mm-hmm. Okay? So now we've evolved to have this feature. It, it, you know, it works well, right? and it's not something we can control. Well, human-on-human violence is relatively rare. Right? Think about how many human beings that you've passed right, between... Now and today, right? How many human beings have you had interactions with versus how many human beings have you had interaction with where they've tried to kill you, (laughs) right? Yeah. So that's why when these things happen, it's so detrimental to our psyche, right? Because this isn't normal, Mm -hmm. right? It's it's so shocking to us. That's why you have, you know, a sexual assault victim where you just rape once, right? You know, but it's so detrimental because that 0.1% 
poor girl has, has, has how many other men that she's met in her life. One has hurt her and she will never be the same after that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's so detrimental, human on human violence. Well, then you think, all right, well, you know, Viking days was violent, right? Well, again, we're thinking about the birth, the birth of humankind, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the violence that we have now, it's disgusting. We have atomic bombs. We have EMPs. You know, we, we can kill lots of people very quickly, right? And also, Vikings weren't at war for 20 years, right? These wars didn't last a week. These wars didn't last for great lengths of time, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So like, if we have this feature, fight or flight, and it kicks in when our brain knows we're in danger, right? Well, your brain is smarter than, than your aware self. Your brain knows more than you realize, mm. right? Your brain is constantly taking in sensory input, constantly, constantly. Like for example, right now, you're getting the sensory input of the carpet on your feet, but you don't even recognize it until I made you think of your feet mm-hmm. and then you're squishing your toes and you're thinking, yeah, I felt the carpet the whole time. It's always been there. But I only made aware of it until Scott said, think of your feet, Mm -hmm. right? So your brain is constantly bombarded with information. So your brain knows you're in danger, right? So it doesn't matter if you're on a a forward operating base, just walking to the chow hall back and forth every day, or if you're actively engaging the enemy. It doesn't matter. It's different degrees of fight or flight, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So fight or flight isn't a button that you switch, right? A toggle on or off. It's graduated. It could be drip, drip, drip. So when you know you're in danger, right? Your brain knows you're in danger from the moment you step off the airplane in Afghanistan or a hostile country, wherever you're at, mm-hmm. your brain is producing more cortisol, mm. right? Elevated levels of cortisol. So cortisol, as we all know, is a stress hormone. Everybody knows stress is detrimental to the human body, but your brain knows, hey, I'm in danger, so I need to be on a little heightened state of awareness. So let me bump it up, right? turn the dial to one, two, or three, depending on what you're doing. So your, your brain is, is saturated in cortisol for extended periods of time, right? It's just being bombarded with, with cortisol. The human brain hasn't evolved to be able to handle being saturated in cortisol for extended periods of time. So if you take a, a I think it's a CT scan of, of someone's brain before deployment and after deployment, it'll look different, right? You'll mm-hmm. see little dark spots on the, on the brain after deployment. Mm. Well, those are injuries. It's the same way as if you stub your toe or break your leg. Yeah, it's a physical thing. It's a physical injury. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing as if you stub your toe or break your leg, right? Well, what are the symptoms of stubbing your toe, right? You feel pain. It's radiating, right? It's red. It's swollen. Well, what are the symptoms of this other injury? They present themselves in a smorgasbord of ways, right? It could be aggression. It could be anxiety, depression. It could be lots of different ways, right? It all depends on, on that individual, of course, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so I don't see it a, as a weakness. For example, you have these Sherpas who, who climb Mount Everest. That's what they do. They, they climb Everest up and down, up and down. They shuttle everyone's gear back and forth. They set ropes. They've you know, summited Everest 15 times without oxygen. They're tough. Well, every once in a while, some of those Sherpas just come down with, with altitude sickness, right? It's not that they're weak, right? It's not that they just can't hack it. And it's the same thing with PTSD. This, this person isn't weak. No. This guy's our army ranger. Yeah. Right? This guy's Delta Force. Right? These guys aren't weak. But we're fragile creatures. Our brains haven't evolved to be able to handle being saturated in cortisol for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more traumatic event, the, the more damage is. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? The injury is, mm-hmm. we'll say. 
so it's through understanding that. Well, of course, you know, initially there's a shame, like, oh, there's something wrong with me. It's weak. Well, now, now understanding it from this point of view, I, I hope that maybe someone who is struggling with being embarrassed about it right, might realize that we're just a fragile, fragile creatures. I mean, human beings, right, even though, you know, you can deadlift 400 pounds or you can bench press 225, right? We're fragile creatures, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we fall from a great distance, we die. If we get too cold, we die. If we get too hot, we die. Mm-hmm. There's a very uh, small margin between life and death. Again, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. right? It's not weakness whatsoever. Okay, so now I talked about like memory. I said you have a spike of adrenaline, you have a, a, a spike in cortisol and it affects your memory. Well, how does it affect your memory? Okay, so think back to your ancestors on a savanna. In addition to getting those two hormones to help you survive, what your brain does, it allows you to record everything around you. Your brain is constantly recording everything, but it now gives you access to it. So time will appear to slow down. Think about a time, Pete, where you've been almost in a car accident. You almost died. Or listeners, think about a time when someone put a gun in your face. Mm-hmm. Think about a time when, like, no kidding, you thought your life was going to end. Mm-hmm. Okay? You're in a true fight-or-flight moment. You can remember every single detail about that moment. You know what color the wallpaper was. You know if the person shaved that day or not. You can still smell their aftershave, right? So how is that possible? So during this time and during fight or flight, our ancestors, if they were able to remember how they got out of this precarious situation and saved their life, well, if they can remember how they did it, if it happens again, then they know how to, how to solve that problem the next time. Mm-hmm. So it's evolution. I think what's super interesting about that is your perception of time because time is a constant, right? Time doesn't change, mm-hmm. but it's only your, your perception of time. And are you talking about in the incident itself Correct. or are you talking about the reflection of that? Well, well both. Okay. Well, well, time itself um, is a constant. Um, it all depends from your point of reference, how, how, how time is viewed. And that this goes to general theory of relativity. But just to be clear, when you're talking about the slowing down of that time, are you Correct. talking about in the incident itself that created uh, the trauma? Or are you talking about just the reflection of that going back? I'm talking about the incident itself when you're in that life-threatening situation, mm-hmm. when someone put a gun in your face. Mm-hmm. At that moment, you feel like time slows down. But in reality, time is moving at the same rate of speed. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a bandwidth of your ability to take in information. Absolutely. So you start recording, right? right. You start recording in 4K ultra surround sound, right? H- high definition. You know everything about this moment. Here's where I, I find, I-, I think a lot of veterans might find, might find some peace. A lot of us are having trouble realizing that we're not able to use our brain at that capacity again. We've lived life to the fullest. Right? And when I say fullest, let me say that differently. We've, we've, we've been able to use our brain to a higher degree. Mm-hmm. We've been able to absorb more information more clearly. We, we've, we've seen things differently. We know what we're capable of. And here we are now in this clock in, clock out, mundane, safe world. Mm-hmm. It's black and white. Mm-hmm. It's monochrome. Mm-hmm. It's boring. Right? That's why you see so many veterans who are adrenaline junkies or who, who find peace in chaos. Mm-hmm. Because they, they need to have their brain at that heightened state. Someone who hasn't experienced this, I don't think they can fully internalize what it means to have the ability to use your brain at that level, and then now you don't. And, 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 it's, and it's sad in a lot of ways, because here we are, we know what it's like, and how do you explain to someone, yeah, I feel disconnected. Well, what, are you, what are you, sad? Well, no, let me, just, let me explain, you know, fight or flight, right? Let me mm-hmm. get to the point. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and it's hard for people to realize how monotony is, it's mind-numbing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think I think it's fascinating stuff, man. 
It is absolutely fascinating. Um, and better understanding it, especially from someone like yourself. This is the same thing that Tom was telling me on his episode where there are a lot of guys that are sort of suffering in shame because of the guilt of, am I weak for this? And to me, the, the courage that um, you guys are having to step forward into the spotlight and say, yeah, this is, it's okay. It is what it is. Um, the, the fragility of our human experience is natural. This isn't a disorder. You don't want that to be your everyday input and have that just simply be okay. It should Absolutely. spike. It should say, hey, this is not cool. This Absolutely. is not a good thing. Well, think about this. So do, do you think the U.S. military knows about this? I would assume so. Why aren't they talking about it? That's a good question. Would you raise your right hand and enlist for four years on the promise, hey, once you're done, you're never going to be the same, right? You have the potential to, to have cycles of depression. You're not going to feel connected to anything around you ever again, but give us four years and serve the country. Who would ever, who would ever enlist knowing that, hey, when I leave here, I'm never going to be the same. And, and it doesn't matter, like I said, if you're just turning a wrench on, on, a, on, a, on a truck, on, on a fob and never left the base, or if you're Delta Force sniper, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's danger in, in both jobs. I'm not diminishing the mechanic who applies for PTSD. Yeah, your brain knows you're in danger. Mm -hmm. You never left the fob but your brain knows you're in danger, so you're different, right? Mm -hmm. That person might have anxiety now, that person mm -hmm. might have depression now, right? The Delta Force operator who is, who, who is doing heavy work, absolutely that person is injured, mm -hmm. right? How can you not be? Every single one of us who, who spent more than a, a month overseas in a combat zone qualify for this injury, mm -hmm. right? Qualify for a percentage of this, this rating. I, I think it's, it'd be detrimental to the enlistment numbers, right? Well, you know, good. Right? Maybe we should stop fighting people, you know? Something to think about. Yeah. Is there anything that the average person, the listener right now, can do to support? I mean, what that's one of the horrific statistics that we keep hearing about is 22 veterans a day, you know, ending their lives. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Um, I've, I've, um, um, I do have experience in this, in this side of the house. Um, I've had a few friends kill themselves or attempt to or, you know, talk them off a ledge. None of us are taught what to say or do, right? The mm -hmm. last thing in the world any any veteran wants to do is, is call some stranger on a suicide hotline to get pumped through some bureaucratic process of, of customer service, mm -hmm. right? I've been through that process because, hey, I've got a friend who wants to kill himself. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And she's more concerned about my health. Like, no, like, like tell me what to say, what to do. Mm -hmm. like, like, they don't want to call you. They, he wants to talk to me. Trust me, right? So a, a veteran... Um, our, our trust is typically difficult to earn, right? So I'm not going to call some some telemarketer for help. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call my friends. Hey, man, I'm having a hard time, and we, we talk about it. But none of us none of us are given any kind of classes or education or what to say, what to do. Unfortunately, it's trial and error. Um, it, it's trial and error. I've got a, a good buddy of mine who has um, heavy background in psychology, who's also a retired Green Beret, and he said if anyone ever presents that they want to harm themselves. Repeat this phrase in the most calm and direct and reassuring manner possible, right? The phrase is, I'm here to help you with whatever you need. Hmm. So say it again and again and again, and then you have a conversation, hmm. right? I'm here to help you with whatever you need. Mm -hmm. And I've unfortunately had to say that to people. And none of us veterans are taught this stuff. We mm -hmm. got to figure it out on our own. 
Uh, shout out to Tom Satter- Satterley and his wife, Jen, who are doing an incredible job with their foundation. It's called All Secure Foundation. Uh, and they have been doing incredible work with veterans who are dealing with it and their spouses, their families. Um, it's a family effort. Be sure to check them out if you're wanting to reach out. One thing I just wanted to share with you really quick. I, I was working, this was a couple years ago, I was working at a Starbucks. Um, I was on my way home. It was winter time. It started to snow. It was. Uh, I was on the highway. It was like 40 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, I see some cars starting to spin out in front of me. And, uh, you know, 40 miles an hour doesn't seem that fast. And all of a sudden, I pull up in front of the car, and I realize, uh, oh, there's some serious damage here to the vehicle. And I'm literally the first car that could have enough time to slow down and get out. So I get out, um, go up to the car, and there was a young boy, probably 18 years old, and he's yelling, no, no, and, and I and I thought it was just him. I could, the, the airbag had deployed, so I couldn't see beyond that. But And I didn't realize, but the entire side of the other side of the car had oh, been smashed in. Yeah, it's tragic. I thought it was his mother at the time, so I was like, instantly I'm like, let me get him out of oh, here. Oh, no. yeah. And I, you know, end up watching this woman bleed out, and that was, you know, it was the end of her life. I was so grateful there was another car that was passing by, and the window rolled down. He's like, is everything okay? And I just looked at him, I was like, no, we're not. This isn't good. Uh, so he hopped out and he goes, I'm off duty EMT. So I was like, yeah, let him You're, you're on scene, pal. Yeah, yeah. You take it from here. Uh, so anyway, it, it certainly was a, a adrenaline spike. For sure. For sure. Um, it, the wildest thing was to drive home after that. Like, what the fuck do I do with the rest of my day, the rest of my week, the rest yeah, of my... Yeah. That's so weird. And, um, and it definitely shook me. Um, but at the same time... Because of a lot of the personal development that I've been through, a lot of it's very, you know, and I've had a very sheltered life. But even in a sheltered life, you deal with relative stress, relative childhood wounds and whatever. And so I had done a lot of psychological work. So I knew um, some of the tools. And what happened was I knew in that moment, because later that evening, I realized I was holding my breath. Because all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. I was like, oh, I'm holding my breath. Interesting, yeah. And so I'm like, um, I'm like, okay, how do I... Actually, I called up, uh, Jen, thank you for your support in that moment. The thing that came to me was I couldn't not see the woman. Right. And I realized that my brain is basically... It took a snapshot and it was an unpleasant snapshot. So I realized, um, well, let me just push the play button. So I pushed the play button and I kind of just opened up to what came to me, I allowed myself to let it be gross. Right. Because there's a part of me that was like, that's disrespectful. Right, right. But it, it's, it's, it's a little bit gross. You know, if that was me, I'd be looking at myself going, oh, this is nasty, you know. But I pushed the play button and she opened her eyes. She looked like the Oracle from the Matrix, just super, very motherly energy. And she just looked at me and she said, I'm okay, baby. The other thing that was really helpful too, this is, this is coming from some of my Tony Robbins experience. Right. When he talks to people who have trauma, there's a movie playing in our head. Mm-hmm. Shrink down the size of the movie, turn it black and white, zoom out, and then he said, "Play it forward, play it backwards, play it forward, rewind it, play it backwards." Now do it in a in a sped up, so it sort of sounds like a chipmunk voice. Then make it silly, and so then I added. I was just adding things psychologically. I'm like, I I knew at that point in time, like I need to address this, otherwise I could see this kind of recurring in my thought, Um, and so I just kind of made it a little bit silly, like um, you know, having her look at me and be like. This is kind of gross, isn't it? I was like, yeah, it's kind of gross. Can I help you in any way? I'm okay, baby. I'm okay, baby. Right. That's what she kept saying back to me. I only offer that humbly because I've had a couple people come back and say, hey, that really helped think through my right. situation. Nothing, nothing to do with that. Um, well, it's the same concept that's... that I described. is just shifting your perspective yes. to see it from a different point of view. Yes. Right? So in order to 
get through whatever you know, block you're having. Just just look at it from a different angle, mm-hmm. right? And that's the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So 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 let's talk about the positive in this, right? So so what's come of this? What what have we created? What did Russ and I create through through this entire endeavor? Okay. Well, Russ and I are still feeding families today. We've created this whole underground railroad network system of supply networks. We can get through Taliban lines, right? We have people on payroll. It's incredible. So not only not only food, right, and supplies. We're talking about medical supplies. So we've created also this underground network, this underground railroad of doctors. So one thing I always tell Russ, my writing partner, is the reason why he's he's been able to achieve so much success in this post-Afghanistan space is because he doesn't know anything about Afghanistan. Mm. Well, back then he didn't. Mm. Right now, now he's you know mm-hmm. he's he's um he's brilliant. But back then he just out of the box kind of thinking. He was on a conference call and there was someone who needed pretty serious medical care and he was on his conference call with you know there was a couple of special forces guys there's a couple of politicians there's a couple of staffers a whole you know heads of other organizations and everyone's having a conversation about how they can move this person to safety and what they're going to do well russ ended that conference call he found the closest hospital to this person he called him up on the phone hey let me talk to the, the hospital director right and the mm-hmm. hospital he told director who he was and now that director is in Russ's pocket. Yeah, what do you need? We can help you out. I've got a whole list of doctors who want to help. And Russ did that for numerous locations. So we have this entire underground railroad network of doctors, people who have no problem going through Taliban lines to deliver care, right? But people come to us because they don't trust the U.S. government, right? They don't trust anyone else. So the only person they trust is Russ. So to this date, we've, I say we, but Russ is, is leading the charge on this. But um, 700 babies. Damn. Right? We delivered 700 babies covertly, secretly, wow. hiding from the Taliban. Wow. Right? Like, again, this ended on a positive note, right? Yeah. I know. <laughs> the story ends positive, <laughs> yeah. but this is tragic. Right? Yeah. One of the doctors who was actively helping you know, move supplies through Taliban lines. Well, one day this doctor was, was with his nephew. Right, his, um, his young nephew, I think he was like 12 years old. They had bags of medical supplies going through a Taliban checkpoint. And there's like glass and stuff in there. Well, the Taliban, the checkpoint told them, drop the bags. Right, they didn't search them. Well, the doctor just opened his hand and let gravity just drop it as fast as he possibly could because mm-hmm. you can't delay. Mm-hmm. Well, the kid didn't want to break the glass and he gingerly set it on the ground. And they, they killed the kid right there. They shot the kid in the face. Mm. They, they killed this guy's nephew right in front of him at that checkpoint because he was maybe a quarter second too slow dropping that, that bag of medical supplies. Mm. That doctor, he didn't flinch. He didn't flinch. Kept his hands up, right? Taliban checked the bags. Oh, all good to go. Move on. Move on through. Damn. That very next day, that doctor is still going through Taliban checkpoints. Wow. Right? They're not the enemy that people told us they are. Mm-hmm. So this doctor has been instrumental in keeping this, um, we call it the Afghan Medical Corps. So this doctor has been instrumental in keeping the Afghan Medical Corps up and running. And because he's, he's sacrificed so much to include his nephew, mm-hmm. Russ, my writing partner, adopted his other nephew. Amazing. Yeah, he's at his house right now. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, more, there's more to it than this, right? There was a gentleman, um, retired General Hicks, um, who's a regular person in our conference calls. We interviewed him once. We didn't write an article about it, but fascinating gentleman. Top-notch, top shelf, all the respect in the world for him. 
Well, his organization, his group was called Operation Sacred Promise, I believe. And General Hicks was only concerned about the A-29 pilots. So Afghanistan, for the first time in the history of that country, had fighter pilots, right? So cool. It was incredible. It's, yeah. it's, it's as, as interesting as like the Tuskegee Airmen, yeah. right? Yeah. So Afghans, I mean, they, they're not you know, flying you know, Raptors or anything like that. They're A-29s, a, a lower class of a fighter, but it's still an incredible feat for this third world country to have a, a fighter program, right? Mm-hmm. And that was General Hicks' baby. So General Hicks was keeping tally of all these A-29 pilots and the maintainers and their families. And it's a gigantic list and they're all scattered all over the place now, right? Um, so we wrote two stories um, of two different pilots and they're both found on my website. Well, Russ, my writing partner, was really drawn to the story of the A-29 pilots. So, so I bowed out from participating in any of these groups because there's too many sharks, but Russ continues connecting with these other people because he doesn't need all these other people now for networks, right? He's created his own his own networks. I mean, the FBI, the CIA, the DOJ, a bunch of other thriller agencies have knocked on his door and called him, hey, can we use your network? And he's told him, fuck you. Well, let me say that differently. Russ has told him, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> In not so polite terms, yeah. um, the the sense of entitlement that these agents have when they approach him, as if they're talking to a piece of trash. Mm-hmm. How they talk about Afghan lives, right? This is just a statistic to them, right? This is a, something they do until they have their next duty assignment, right. right? This isn't a mission to them. This is just something I do and I can clock out. So they can be as rude as they want. You can't get fired if you're a government employee. It doesn't matter. Right, they're, they're low-class individuals. Mm. Speaking in generalities, right? The people who've contacted Russ have been low-class individuals. So these A-29 pilots, Russ has taken a, a strong interest in. This is something I can manage, mm-hmm. right? We already have these food networks taken care of. They're automated now. The Afghan Medical Corps is somewhat automated now. All Russ is now is an operator. Mm. Okay, well, these A-29 pilots now Russ is putting his energy into this. So he was able to connect all of them, all these pilots, through a signal group now. So for the first time after Afghanistan, they're all like talking to each other, wow. right? And it was incredible that they're able to finally communicate, right? And Russ put it all together. So, so in addition to that now, just three weeks ago, Russ and two of the pilots went to Alaska Airlines, the corporate headquarters, and he's been in communication with other airlines. They're going to put him through ground school. These pilots who are stranded with you know, nothing to do or here in the States, living in, in refugee camps, right? Russ is working on getting them ground school. Mm. And I think the first ground school class has already been scheduled. Mm. But just three weeks ago, Russ has texted me pictures of these pilots at Alaska Airlines corporate headquarters sitting in a simulator flying a plane. Wow. And Russ said it, it was that moment where it, it hit him, right? It, because... This was like three weeks ago. What hit him exactly? The last time these guys were in an airplane was when they were flying out of their country. Oh. Right? Hmm. Because their handlers and their bosses, oh, hey, they told them, get in the plane and go. Mm-hmm. We don't care where you just go. Leave. Like, take this plane out of the country. Hmm. They couldn't see, even see their wives or kids, families. Hey, throw them the keys you know, and go. I don't think planes have keys, but <laughs> you get the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, beat it, right? So their wives and families, and these, these, these pilots are, are high value targets, 
So all their families are also high value targets. Sure. It's dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. After these pilots would fly missions in Afghanistan, their, their, their villages would be, be raided, right? Mm-hmm. So these pilots were doing this to support the United States, to help themselves, to help the United States, to help right? this, this partnership. And the rug just got pulled out. So the positive news is Russ has secured ground school for these pilots. There's a whole group of them at a refugee camp, like 20 minutes from Russ's house. So he's able to pull them off that base and have them over for dinner. It's, it's incredible what he's been able to put, put together. And no one knows about it. Wow. Yeah, no one knows about it. Yeah, that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, we're working yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, I, so on my website, it's uh, scottchapmanauthor.com. You can find all the stories that I just talked about. There's a tab, it's AFG tab, Afghanistan. And on that tab, it's a summary of everything that we've done since I wrote that article. You have all the stories, you have the whole Kiter District Massacre PDF you can download. And also on there, so the gentleman who was part of that Kiter District Massacre who gave us all the information, he finally came out and was agreed to be interviewed. So he did an interview with a publication called Aware Now. Uh, aware now, um, him and Russ did a three-way call, and you can hear him in his own words describing what happened. Well, in addition to that, on my website, on that same AFG tab, I saved a voice message that he left to Russ that made its way around the entire post-Afghanistan mm. community of people who are trying to help, and it's him essentially saying hey, these guys lied to me. They told me if I, this happened, they promised this. It's just a whole series of unkept promises. Mm. And anyway, so I was able to save that voicemail and upload it so you can hear his own words. Mm. Don't, don't just take my word for it, right? Listen, listen to him. Yeah. And then on that AFG tab on the website, then you can really see the full scope of everything I, I just mentioned. You know, apologies as of today, that page isn't complete yet. But 90% of the story is, is, is told in bullet points. They're, they're heartbreaking stories. I've yeah. recently reread a few, and they're difficult to read, man. They're really difficult to read. You know, I have just a, a faint memory even writing it because I was just so busy. We were just churning out the words all day. Mm-hmm. So these stories are difficult to read. And unfortunately, we learned that most of those people are dead now. Wow. So this is really the last, like, gasp for help, mm-hmm. you know, the last written acknowledgement that this person even existed Mm. and it's heartbreaking it is heartbreaking thank you for sharing all of this this is the kind of stuff that people need to know about we need to know the damage that's being done to individuals and their families and their communities and their countries and 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 ours as well and uh so just thank you thank you for taking the time to bring that to the surface